My toes are much better now. I can walk without pain. And for about four days there, they were absolute agony. This is Gwendolyn Stangle. She lives in Minnesota. She's an artist and a mom. And a while ago, out of nowhere, she started getting blisters all over her feet. I'm not experiencing very much pain in my feet right now. Um, but about four days after the symptoms started, they were very painful, very swollen. Um, so at the time, she didn't know what was going on. She's feeling better now. She can walk through this gravel parking lot on her way to pick up art supplies. But back when her feet revolted on her, this little walk would have been impossible. I couldn't wear shoes. Even the sheet on my bed hurt extremely. I couldn't sleep one entire night because of the pain. It all started with one blister. That blister turned into like a blood blister. It started to look um, very wrong. <laughs> it was very red and very swollen. Um, the rest of my toes started to get sort of hives, um, little bumps, which um, it was it was not quite a rash, but I felt like it was some sort of a reaction, like a rash. I didn't have any idea what was happening and the fact that it was spreading to my other foot. I was I was quite alarmed. Just a few weeks before that first blister, Gwendolyn had a little cold. It was so mild she didn't even miss any work. Turns out, though, it wasn't a cold. It was COVID-19. And those blistered toes, they're now referred to commonly as COVID toes. And they're among a growing and mysterious mix of seemingly unconnected and sometimes deadly symptoms and syndromes related to this disease. But are they unconnected? Really? What's going on here? From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish, and I'm Bonnie Petrie. Today, we're talking about COVID-19 beyond the lungs. Hi, sweetie. How are you doing? Good. Good? Uh-huh. How did you feel when you had coronavirus? Bad. Why? I don't know. What, what felt bad? I don't know. This is Stephanie, and she's talking to her three-year-old daughter, Charlotte. You felt bad? What felt bad? My, um, legs. Your legs? <laughs> How do you feel now? Good. You feel good? Uh-huh. Why do you feel good? Because I'm out of the hospital. Because you're out of the hospital. Charlotte has spent a lot of time in the hospital recently. At first, it was just like severe uh, vomiting, diarrhea. Her symptoms started before the coronavirus even became a big concern here in the U.S. She had a little bit of a respiratory thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't even like a concern to us. She became incredibly dehydrated. And at this time late, late January and early February. And so they had no idea that the coronavirus was even really here. But the county where Stephanie and Charlotte live in California, Santa Clara, was an early hotspot for the coronavirus. In fact, one of the very first known COVID deaths in the U.S. happened there. We most likely got it in Santa Clara because that's kind of where all these first ones were. And we were literally there all the time. 
Stephanie's older daughter also got sick with what could have been the coronavirus, but she got better. Charlotte's symptoms, though, slowly got worse, and she started to get new, strange symptoms. And then she developed this full body rash from her neck all the way down, red hands, red feet. She had really red cracked lips. And then her abdomen came extremely distended. Like it, I'd never seen anything like it. Stephanie took her daughter to the emergency room again and again. And each time they sent her home and said some variation of, we don't really know what's happening to your daughter. Also, Charlotte is three, so it's hard sometimes for her to communicate exactly what's going on. So she also woke up from a nap and she was sitting on the couch and she was like, Mom, I can't see. I was like, huh? Like my heart just like dropped. I was like, what is going on? And she was like, my eyes hurt so bad. She was like, I can't open my eyes. Yes, sweetie, you can, you can get it out. You just have to give me... Give me a couple minutes. Another panicked rush to the hospital happened in the middle of the night when Charlotte woke up and told her mom she couldn't move. Each new doctor that Stephanie went to had a few new ideas, but none of them could really confirm anything. They kept saying she didn't fit into a box, that they didn't really know what was going on. They didn't They didn't think that it was critical. So this back and forth between home and the hospital, this this constant wondering what what would happen to her daughter, it dragged through February and March and then April. During that period, Charlotte was not the only kid with a mysterious battery of symptoms that no one could explain. Uh, but we were laboring under the impression that young people were not affected by COVID-19. So the first epicenter of this pandemic in the United States was New York. A few weeks in, docs started seeing kids come into the hospital with a wide variety of symptoms. Some of them were very sick. Some of them died. It was alarming enough to get the attention of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Here he is at a press conference on May 9th. We're not so sure that that is the fact anymore. Toddler elementary school children are presenting symptoms similar to Kawasaki disease or toxic shock-like syndrome. At that press conference, the governor said three children had died of this unnamed, previously unknown illness that seemed to be associated with COVID, but wasn't impacting the lungs. Now, these are children who come in who don't present the uh, symptoms that we normally are familiar with with COVID. It's not a respiratory illness. They're not in respiratory distress. Also around this time, in upstate New York, a young boy came into the intensive care unit with symptoms similar to Charlotte's. His name was Bobby, and ICU doctor Jake Dinas treated him. So he was admitted to our general floor with chapped lips, some rash, some his eyes were red. He also presented with abdominal pain. So that was quite unique. It, it was his abdominal pain was really the primary symptom that got a medical attention. Bobby's heart was pumping really fast, and yet his blood pressure was dangerously low. Just like with Charlotte, they kept ruling things out and they just couldn't come to any conclusion about his diagnosis. I think the best way to describe it is just, it just didn't add up. And we were really 
learning about it almost in real time as we were seeing that patient. Charlotte was in California, Bobby was in New York, and Centers for Disease Control was aware of similar cases in other overseas COVID hotspots. So CDC called on a doctor in one of those hotspots to talk to American pediatricians. Hello, uh, and thanks very much um, for the invitation to share uh, the experience we've had uh, in the United Kingdom um, with you. Right there, you're hearing Dr. Michael Levin. He's a pediatrician at Imperial College London. Like Governor Cuomo, he reminded doctors of the good old days of this pandemic, in reality, just a couple of months before. So I think that uh, perhaps the only good news there was on the COVID epidemic seemed to be that children had mild disease. But as weeks went on, that belief started to receive some serious challenges. And it was sort of towards the end of March that we, a number of pediatricians started noticing an unusual illness. And uh, we had children who were admitted to pediatric intensive care units, critically ill, with a very unusual syndrome. They had been uh, unwell with variable symptoms, often including sore throat, headache, but particularly abdominal pain and vomiting. He flips through his slides on the Zoom call. uh, If I can have the next slide, please. And he describes symptoms that sounded a lot like Charlotte's and a lot like Bobby's. So the question that in reviewing the patients we had was what was this illness? Dr. Levin said kids were coming in with horrible stomach pain, rashes, fevers, with red eyes. It didn't seem like any disease they knew of. So, of course, they wondered if it had anything to do with the coronavirus. It seemed to be a new and unusual childhood illness, which was emerging really a month behind the COVID epidemic curve in the UK. But the kids were testing negative for COVID-19. Then, though, they started to do COVID antibody tests on these kids, which will tell you whether a person has had COVID in the past. And bingo, they were positive. These children, many of whom showed no signs of respiratory disease before this weird cluster of symptoms hit them, had all been infected with the COVID virus. They're calling this illness multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children because it can truly impact all of the systems of the body. This is not how respiratory viruses usually work. I'm certainly familiar with viral infections. H1N1 is uh, really clear in my mind in terms of how sick people would become. I'd be one of the first uh, to say that this this virus is, is different. Dr. Richard Becker is the director of the University of Cincinnati Heart, Lung, and Vascular Institute. He says at first doctors were treating COVID like other respiratory viruses, but it rather quickly became clear that COVID wasn't like other respiratory viruses. The difference that stood out to him was in the blood. Now, you expect a certain amount of blood clots to form when the immune system is fighting off any kind of infection, especially when you're seeing the uncontrolled immune response associated with a cytokine storm. But what was uh, different here was the the overall incidence was 
higher uh, than what we had seen previously, including with prior in influenza outbreaks or SARS or MERS or, or other types of severe viral infections. For many COVID patients, there are just clots everywhere, over and above what you'd expect to see with a respiratory infection. In addition, uh, we were seeing blood clots in a, in a variety of areas that are not considered common, and that included uh, strokes, blood clots in blood vessels of the, of the heart, sometimes in, in the legs. And occasionally we would see them in individuals who had very mild cases of COVID-19, occasionally asymptomatic cases in young individuals who had blood clots in the legs, blood clots in the lungs, occasionally strokes. Uh, and that was really, really unusual. And in too many cases, this happens after the initial celebration of having beaten this disease. Some individuals have done well during their hospitalization and their first thrombotic event is weeks or even even later. We're trying to understand what that's all, all about. But what appears to be coming clear is that the COVID virus is escaping the lungs and getting everywhere. Somehow, for some patients, COVID infection gets into their network of blood vessels, causing inflammation. I would agree that based on the information that we have at, at hand, that blood vessels, small and large arteries and veins, seem to have inflammation. And I also believe, based on the information that's available to us, that a lot of the thrombosis that we, we see in varying organs has its beginnings, if you will, within inflammation of the, of the blood vessels that impairs the, the natural ability to limit uh, blood clotting. And that impairment is something that is very dangerous. So this respiratory disease appears to also sometimes be a disease of the blood vessels, a vascular disease. And if COVID can become a disease of the blood vessels, a vascular disease, it can go wherever it wants to multiple systems. It can become a multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children and adults. For adults, it's often around 10 days or so into their fight against COVID. Their kidneys would start to show signs of, of weakening. They would see uh, mental status decline, difficulties with breathing and oxygenation, and then ultimately see a decline in, in their blood pressure, which would require initial fluids. And then over time, we would have to use medications to keep their blood pressure elevated enough to, to perfuse their brain and their heart and, and other organs. We also saw um, their liver showing signs of decreased flow and, and, uh, and inflammation as well. And uh, also would show signs of the cardiac system directly being affected either by uh, what would look like myocardial infarction or heart attack, sometimes inflammation around the heart. Dr. Vincent Marconi is a professor of medicine and global health in the Division of Infectious Disease at the Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta. He says some of these patients, patients who don't even really seem to be struggling to breathe, their blood oxygen levels get dangerously low. This has come to be known as silent or happy 
hypoxia. These patients have such low blood oxygen, they should be gasping for breath, but they're not. So doctors looked to this unusual blood clotting we've been talking about as a possible cause. It first was most evident to us as um, venous thromboses, either in, in extremity veins or also in the lung. And then in time, we began to understand that the pathology of the difficulty oxygenating patients was actually due more so to small, very small clots that we couldn't detect by normal uh, mechanisms in the small veins and, and so forth in the in the lung as well. And so, so it wasn't the way their lungs were or weren't working that was the problem here. The blood flow to and from the lungs appeared to be compromised, causing the low blood oxygen levels. Again, you don't see this with flu or SARS or MERS. You usually don't see people, including young, healthy people, just dying of heart attacks with those viruses either. But you do sometimes with COVID and also strokes. So just a few months ago, remember a few months ago, strokes were something you only started to worry about in middle age. I mean, it was a blood clot to the brain. It was a major, major stroke. So they had to go through the CDC has been trying to get Americans more aware of their stroke risk for years, like with this YouTube video they did to raise awareness back in 2016. Stroke is the fifth leading cause of death for all Americans, including African Americans, but African Americans are twice as likely to have a stroke compared to whites. Strokes can be so deadly because they offer no warning. You can feel fine right before it happens. And then at the end of my workout, when I played some basketball, and all of a sudden, I just felt dizzy. And I started holding, holding on to the wall, holding on to my friends. He said, lift your left hands, and I barely could move my left hands. So he said, immediately call 911, he's got having a stroke. Now, the invisible threat of a stroke is stacked on top of the invisible threat of COVID. And after you recover from the virus, risk of a stroke seems to remain. So let's really focus on what we know and then parcel out what we think we know but need to prove, okay? So there's a big difference. Dr. Patrick Leiden is a neurologist specializing in strokes at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. What we know is that whenever a person has a severe infection, COVID or any other infection, their risk of stroke is increased. That's because when we're very ill, our blood is more likely to clot. So we're more likely to suffer a blood clot. And if that blood clot occurs in a brain artery, it blocks the blood flow, causes the stroke. As soon as the blood flow is blocked in the brain, the clock starts ticking to get it moving again. A good analogy is if you imagine a football field that has four sprinklers, one in each corner. If I block one sprinkler, all right, the grass around that corner of the football field, it starts to die the day the sprinkler is, is turned off. If you leave the sprinkler off long enough, that whole patch will be dead. But if you turn the sprinkler back on within a certain amount of time, you can save that patch of the field. When it comes to strokes, you only have a matter of minutes to maybe hours to turn that sprinkler back on. If we can treat you soon enough, restore blood to the brain, uh, the brain will, will come back and we won't have permanent damage. Dr. Leiden has seen COVID patients have strokes weeks after they recovered. During the recovery phase, you go home 
that response is still there, even though it's no longer needed, right? The germ is long gone, but you're still sort of making all those chemical and biological adjustments. And Dr. Becker, the vascular expert we talked to in Cincinnati, he also told us people could have strokes weeks after they recover from COVID and that the inflammation caused in the blood vessels can linger, as can the risk of blood clots stopping blood flow anywhere in the body, the kidneys, the liver, the heart, and the brain. What we don't know is how long it will last. And if it lasts for weeks to months, it means that some individuals, including those who are not particularly sick during hospitalization, may have later thrombotic events. So what the heck is going on here? Why is COVID so much different from other respiratory viruses? How does it escape the lungs and other places in which respiratory viruses typically cause trouble and get everywhere? Dr. Marconi, the infectious disease expert in Atlanta, says there are several theories, but one thing is clear. The COVID virus shuts down a receptor on the cells it infects called ACE2. That receptor would typically convert the enzyme angiotensin 2 into something else. But now you've lost that receptor and that enzyme, which causes a buildup of angiotensin 2. And that buildup actually causes further vascular problems. So free radicals build up, causing damage to the vasculature. There's a decrease in vasodilators, so blood vessels don't get more open, but instead constrict. Add to that the inflammation you're already seeing and the overreaction of the immune system. All four of those things result in the, in the vascular clots that we've talked about. And that's a real hallmark of this disease. So vascular clots that could cause a stroke in your brain and, turns out, blisters on your toes. It did hurt quite a bit. I think the swelling was what made them very, very tender and very sore. Um, it was hard to walk. Um, the, one of the, There was one night I couldn't sleep because just the sheets touching my toes hurt. So yeah, it was agony for, for about four days there. Back to Minnesota, Gwendolyn Stangle and her COVID toes. An increasing number of docs think COVID toes might be a result of small clots in the blood vessels of the feet, a vascular disease. I'm about four weeks from onset of symptoms and the lesions are healed, um, but it still looks like something happened to my feet. Definitely could see signs that I had some open wounds on my toes. Gwendolyn says if a few days of oozing, painful feet are all she gets from this disease, she counts herself as extremely lucky. It, it seems to be a relief that I missed the nasty ventilator, scary part of it. And, you know, of course, I'm still questioning if we can get it again or if there's going to be a new strain. You know, there's a, a lot of questions still out there. And Dr. Marconi at Emory says Gwendolyn is extremely lucky. If a person ends up in the hospital with multi-system inflammatory syndrome, their path to recovery is not so quick or so clear. These patients are profoundly impacted and it's all different ages. It isn't just, you know, folks in their 70s and 80s, but younger ages, we see a very slow recovery 
um, neurocognitively, uh, musculoskeletal system, all of their uh, cardiovascular endurance. It takes a very long time to come back from this. Um, and it's probably more, although this isn't a controlled study, but it appears to be more than we would, would normally see with similar kinds of diseases uh, of this severity. That's been true for three-year-old Charlotte. Her mom, Stephanie, says four months after Charlotte's first symptoms, she's still not completely back to normal. Her balance and coordination are still off. The residual things that she has left are she'll be like running and she'll fall. Like, I don't know how many pairs of leggings and jeans she has that just have holes in the knees now. Mom worries, but she is so proud of her little fighter for getting this far. So when when her dad and I talked to her about it, you know, we we let her know that we were so proud of her and that she's super strong. And she's like, I know I kicked coronavirus's butt. It's like, oh, my gosh. So she's funny. Are you scared of the coronavirus? No. No. Mm-mm. Why? Because. Because why? Because. Are you strong? Yeah. Okay. And we're like, well, how do you feel about all of it? She was just like, well, she was like, mom, I thought I was going to die. I was like, what? what? And I mean, her words and it, it was really emotional and um, difficult to hear your child think that and say that. So as understanding of the diseases caused by this novel coronavirus improves, it is leading to new avenues for possible treatment, specifically drugs that reduce inflammation. Among those are statins, medicine so many people already take to lower their cholesterol. And there is a lot of excitement right now around dexamethasone, a cheap and readily available corticosteroid with powerful anti-inflammatory properties. A recent large randomized trial found a low dose of dexamethasone given to the very sickest COVID patients improved survival rates dramatically. But as we're learning more every day, for many, surviving this disease is just the beginning. So COVID-19, man, this disease is a jerk. Actually, I... uh, can't call it that anymore. I was recently talking to an ICU doc and I dropped that line, trying to be clever. COVID man, such a jerk. And he said he wouldn't call it that. He said it doesn't show the disease, the virus that causes it, enough respect. He said this virus, the COVID virus, is vicious and unlike any doctors have ever treated before. You've heard other docs in this and past episodes of this podcast say pretty much the same thing. They're not messing with you. They're not trying to trick you. This is a nasty virus. Yes, it can be mild. It's mild for many, but it can also be a monster, leaving people with COVID-related challenges for weeks, for months, or for the rest of their lives. And you cannot tell who's gonna get what a friend of mine calls the good COVID and who's gonna get the bad COVID. Yes, there are factors that increase your risk for severe disease, including age, weight, whether you have diabetes, kidney, or heart disease, but you can be a healthy person in your 20s and be felled out of the clear blue sky by a stroke. You can be a giggling preschooler running and playing and then have this virus attack your whole body. Are these risks you're willing to take? 
that you'll get the good COVID or that your child will get the good COVID. I'm not. If you see me, it'll be from a distance and I'll be wearing a mask. Okay, big news, y'all. Good news. Our amazing executive producer, Fernanda Camarena, has added to our staff and her family in the most fantastic way. She gave birth last week to Antonio, who is healthy, handsome, and pure perfection in every way. Mom and baby are doing very well, and we couldn't be happier. Okay, now the credits. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Ben Henry, Dominic Anthony Walsh, and Michael Trevino. Our sound design is masterfully created by Jacob Rosati, and this week, our news director, Dan Katz, pulled editing duty. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. Talk to you soon.